Welcome to IB Talk, the leading podcast for the insurance industry across Australia, New Zealand, and throughout the Asia Pacific region. Brought to you by Insurance Business. Hello, and welcome back to IB Talk. I'm Danny Wood, News Editor of Insurance Business Australia. This episode is presented in partnership with Mekon Insurance, who specialise in the construction sector. Through their partnerships with brokers, they offer insurance services throughout Australia and New Zealand. Glenn Ross is Mekon's CEO, and he's joining us from Sydney, Australia, to talk about the issues facing the construction industry and the construction insurance space. Welcome, Glenn. Thanks, Danny. Glenn, how did you get your start in the insurance industry? Oh, at 19 years old, um, I was tired of driving and repairing old cars, and I wanted a, a modern company car, which was not available to me in my trade as a toolmaker. Uh, I searched the situations vacant in the Auckland Herald for company car and mechanical engineer in the same ad and landed a job with the Engineering Insurance Bureau. Uh, I knew nothing about insurance, but it came with a new car. So what, tell us a bit more about the Engine, Engineering Insurance Bureau. What did they do exactly? Their focus was uh, machinery breakdown of industrial plant and the business interruption that um, uh, uh, that goes with um, those breakdowns. Uh, it, there was a very small amount of um, mystical construction insurance, which was dealt with by um, very senior managers at the time. So you're a, you're a young young guy of uh, in your early twenties working at the Engineering Insurance Bureau. Where did you move after that? Um, I was. Um, taken under uh, NZI's wing as their national engineering manager. It sounds like a strange old leap, but uh, the engineering insurance um, bureau used to do the insurance, the business, the breakdown insurances for a, a whole range of insurance companies, and NZI was at the time the largest uh, contributor to that, and so they they took me over as their engineering manager. And tell us a bit more about your role there. What, what were you doing exactly? Uh, with NZI, I was just tasked with looking after um, what at the time seemed like a, a massive book of business. From memory, it was eight or nine million in gross written premium, which um, in, in Australian terms is, is virtually nothing, but it was actually the largest in uh, New Zealand at the time. And it was my uh, job to um, make sure that it was profitable to develop it um, and um, to look after the claims as well um, in that space. When we spoke quite recently, you were telling me about a couple of mentors who kind of intersected with with you at this point. Can you tell us a bit about them? I can. Um, from NZI, I, I moved to um, Bowring Burgess, Marsh and McLennan, it was at the time, um, now Marsh. And uh, there was a fellow there called Hamish McKenzie who um, was the risk manager for the second largest contractor in um, New Zealand, was Mainzeal. And uh, Marsh had won the business for Fletcher Construction, who was the largest uh, construction contractor in New Zealand at the time. In fact, at one stage, they were, I think, 12th in the world. Um, so they were global, and they needed somebody to risk manage that, and they picked me. Now, I went across there with not much construction experience, um, but Hamish was just a just a, one of life's gentlemen and a, a great mentor for me. Um, I also had the good fortune to rub shoulders with the Fletcher directors, 
and um, they were just a nothing was too much trouble for me. They would sit down and explain things to me. So uh, by the end of the time there, um, there wasn't much about construction that you could teach me. How important were these mentors to you? Do you think I've spoken to a few industry veterans, and they talk about their mentors. I mean, more or less like if they hadn't had these mentors, they wouldn't really be where they were now. Was it were they that important to you? Do you think? I think that they were, Danny. I wouldn't have called them mentors and they probably wouldn't have called themselves mentors. Um, it was just the way that we did business in the day. Um, Marsh had a, um, a manager there called John Richardson and um, he came over to Australia to manage Marsh. I think he was um, eventually manager of Marsh Australasia. Uh, he, he won um, an OBE for his services to business in Australia, so not too bad for a, a Kiwi boy. Um, but I absorbed um, all of the best of those, um, those mentors, if, uh, if you will use that term. And how was it for you? Uh, learning on the fly, I guess, all this new construction knowledge. You, you started off um, more into the car space and now you're specialising and becoming an expert in the construction area. Was that a big challenge for a, a young man back then? It was, um, but as long as you um, have an interest in in the topic, and I certainly did, um, I was on committees that um, drafted the National Conditions of Contract in New Zealand for the Institute of Architects. Learned a lot out of that, and it was Fletcher's that uh, that got me onto that, um, onto that committee. So it was a steep learning curve, but um, a rich one. I really enjoyed it. And tell us about how how this became, I guess, the genesis for for Mekon. How how did how did Mekon actually come about? Uh, I was brought to Australia by um, Lumley Insurance in the day, a fellow called Roger Bostock, and I'd done a bit of risk management work for um, for Lumley, and uh, eventually Roger wore me down with filthy lucre. I didn't like the tax over here at 50%. It was a lot more than the 10 I was paying as a, a consultant to Marsh back in the day. And um, I started Lumley's construction um, business in, in, in Australia and it was my aim to make them the largest uh, construction insurance provider uh, and which I did in, within seven years of, uh, of starting it with them. Um, then Lumley's, who were um, a lovely little family company, um, were moving towards um, a West Farmers a West Farmers buyout and I could see an opportunity in the technical line space in Australia. So I cast about for a carrier in the market and in a very happy set of circumstances, we happened upon um, Richard Enthoven at Hollard. Um, Hollard was very small. I think there, there was six or, or eight of us maybe in the office. It was a fun and a great partner for our startup and um, Richard is too one of life's gentlemen. Uh, originally, we, we set ourselves up to do construction, a mobile plant and machinery breakdown. And of those three, eventually the most successful lines proved to be construction and mobile plant. Tell us about Hollard because you, you mentioned that as being, uh, they were a fun and a great partner, uh, and Richard, a gentleman. What, what made Hollard so much fun? They were certainly culturally different from any company that I'd worked for previously. Um, it was family owned, uh, and I met uh, Richard's mum, dad, cousins. 
Um, and we were just a close-knit little team that uh, didn't um, subscribe to convention, if you will. Uh, and I learned a lot from that cultural exchange. I brought that into Macon. Um, we were originally working in um, Hollard's offices, so we were able to absorb that. Um, and I, I think um, Hollard's story is an inordinately successful one. They, they've turned over a, a billion. Um, I think it was last year they had a billion in, in gross written premium. Around about this time, Hartford Steam and Boiler came in as a disruptor. What happened there? Uh, we looked at what they were doing. We looked at the rates. We looked at the service that they were providing. And um, I elected to stop doing machinery breakdown because we just knew that there was no level there that we could compete with. They certainly um, disrupted. Uh, they actually ran out of steam themselves and folded in Australia. But by then, uh, we were out of machinery breakdown and I didn't um, venture back into it. When you make a decision like that, it just strikes me as a, as a businessman when you say, okay, we're not going to compete in that area. I could imagine there's quite a few people who sort of look at you and go, what, you're not going to compete against them? Was that, was that, was that obvious to everybody at the time that, that were, they were just, that Hartford Steam and Boiler were just doing things too cheaply and it wasn't, wasn't going to make a buck? Or did you have to convince people to go on that journey with you, I guess? That's a good question, Danny. Um, the Hollard boys said to me, well, you know, what are you doing? Same reaction you had um, getting out of it. I think that it was it's one of those technical lines that you need to be close to. As soon as you, you see that, um, with your experience that this isn't going to make a quid, then there's only one thing to do really, and that's just bail out. And we didn't have a lot of business in that space at that time, so it wasn't a very difficult decision for me. I think um, when I th uh, Hartford Steam had run up about two years and then folded, the, the Hollard boys came in and patted me on the back and said, yeah, good decision. But it took them a little while to um, reconcile with that decision. Oh, it's nice that time proved you, proved you right. Seldom happens, Danny. Um, let's talk a bit more about construction because it's not you, you said that construction was the area you focused on but it was also a particular area of the construction market that you thought was lacking and that was suburban brokers or the smaller independent brokers can you tell us what the situation was there I can at the time the international brokers um, sort of ruled the construction roost they had the the best policies they enjoyed the best rates the um, insurers were wooing them uh, and the suburban brokers were um, poor relatives. Uh, the, the products available to the suburban brokers are actually very basic and it irked me to see that um, the suburban brokers uh, were being left to fend for themselves um, and I saw some very extreme examples of them being left um, dangling with covers that they should have um, they should have had to, to um not only to cover their own PI, but to adequately cover their clients. And um, what we, what I thought about it was that because it was so poorly served, and and it was actually my um, favourite technical line, uh, that we could do something in that space and make the biggest um, impact simply by using our knowledge of contracts and risk and and the covers. And that, of course, um, proved to be so. We we took the the, the um, parts of a contract that were required to be insured, uh, which had 
been the domain of the international insurers, and we moved them onto um, a, a viable uh, construction product. And uh, Mekon's been developing that product ever since. Um, and now, when you look at our schedules, you'll see that they replicate the requirements of a of a contract. And and I th- I'm quite proud of that because most of the companies in Australia now follow that same process. So tell us a bit more about that process because I understand part of it involved taking what you knew was going on in in the New Zealand sector and putting those, I guess, national contracts terms into the policies that the suburban brokers were offering. Is that is that right? It, it is, but um, when you look at material damage, um, the and and you look at it globally, so you can look at a. Um, FIDIC, um, or you can look at a JCT, or you can look at uh, one of the contracts in New Zealand or Australia. They've all got a commonality in there. Even some of the terms are the same. The, the terms that are slightly different may have the same meaning at the end of it. So there's an overlay of the risk that these documents um, deal with. The thing that was quite different for me coming into Australia was um, the public liability arena, and particularly where it um, impacts injuries on a site. In New Zealand, that was covered by the um, Accident Compensation Commission at the time, which simply meant that if there was an accident on site, uh, the injured person was looked after by the government um, through the social system there. didn't matter what they needed, wheelchairs, new arms, whatever. Um, It was supplied by the government. But over here, uh, people were looking to say, okay, who caused that? And um, and then there was litigation afoot um, to recover that. And often, although workers' compensation dealt with those sorts of things at the front end, uh, at the at the back end, the public liability insurers were getting um, dragged into court uh, for recovery action on these or um, ad- additional uh, damages, if you will. So by the time public liability um, actually saw the claim and the quantum, it was far greater than the quantum for the work cover people um, who were being paid to cover that risk primarily. And tell us about the response of brokers in all this, because presumably you were offering something, some sort of security that they weren't used to having in this market. It was... uh, a multi-pronged approach, if you like, Danny. We we came up with the, the wording that they needed. We came up with the educational piece that they needed, the brochures. If you look on, on our line, you'll see Meconpedia, uh, which gives you case studies and so on. So we were educating the suburban brokers to give them the confidence to go out and to leg it with the international brokers. So it was a, a, a recipe that was very well received by the suburban brokers. And I, I guess that our growth chart um, shows you how successful that was. Let's talk about some of the other issues in the construction industry and the construction insurance space. I suppose today when we're talking, uh, Australia is opening up to um, vaccinated travellers again. Has COVID been one of the bigger issues of the last couple of years? COVID had a major impact on um, supply chain for um, builders. In fact, just this morning, uh, I was talking to a builder uh, down there where you live, um, based in Kalbara, and uh, he was he's a, one of the large-end builders, the volume builders, and he said they um, buy up in volume. So when the local Bunnings down in Nara gets a, a, a gets framing timber, they ring him and say, "Look, we've got a couple of packets here. Do you want to buy it?" And he's got 
um, the wherewithal to go down there and, and buy it and store it so he um, can keep pace with it. But the smaller builders uh, are being a little bit left behind in terms also of cost because the supply chain um, delays have, have increased cost of materials and also for labour. Um, and, and in fact, he said to me that um, frames are now delayed by up to six months down on the south coast for some of the smaller builders. So it's, it's had quite a quite a major um, effect on um, particularly the smaller builders. He he was telling me that the larger builders are still insulated to some degree because of their buying power, um, but certainly costs have gone up, and that means costs have gone up for consumers as well. So quite a quite a major impact. So in terms of helping out brokers and their construction clients in this space, I mean, how, how does this supply chain disruption impact on someone like you providing the insurance? The underwriting of it hasn't really changed that much. Um, there are two major issues in your, in your underwriting. Um, one is the, the value of the project and the other is the duration of the value. And then there are other factors, of course, physical, geographical, so on. Um, what has happened is that the, the machines and the underwriters <clears throat> um, are, are reacting to that increased time and increased cost. So quid pro quo, the cost of uh, building a house, for example, um, the premium's gone up on that because of those two factors. Um, cost has gone up, duration's up. Has the risk reduced? No, um, the risk hasn't reduced. So the value's there and the insurance product. Um, so it hasn't really had... Uh, an impact on how we underwrite. Where it has had an impact uh, is in delays um, that might be caused by those supply chains. So the risk is held at a certain point and carried forward. And we look at all of those individually and say, look, how has that impacted the risk? Has it made it more or less? And we'll underwrite accordingly. The, the other issue that's playing in here is is changes to legislation uh, in, in New South Wales, particularly that's an area you've mentioned. Can you talk about how legislation is making things a, a little tricky for some? It's um, it's impacted the um, Class 2 um, building contractors in New South Wales more than it has um, pretty much any other state. Um, the Design and Building Practitioners Act um, has come into into play there's a few other acts around that the um, commissioner has been instrumental in um, in introducing and um, that what that's done is it's forced out some of the uh, unsavory builders if you want to call them that the building commissioner calls them something else um, but um, it's forced them out it's it's made some people who were actually good builders in that class too but weren't doing a lot of it they don't want the red tape that goes with it now so they've got out of it but it's created opportunities for um, other builders to come in or to come back into that space so it's it's been a little bit of a double-edged sword but that's where a lot of the change has been and it came off hard on the heels of the Opal Towers and mascot um, debacles which have been in the media um, and, and actually caused the government to sit up and smell a coffee. Um, it's very likely to have uh, a flow-on effect to other states and I know that Victoria's looking closely at um, what the build, Building Commission is achieving in New South Wales and I dare say that they'll um, follow suit at some stage. Can we backtrack a little because um, another interesting issue that we've touched on 
probably not as much as we, we could is, is litigation and the costs of litigation. What are you seeing in the construction area in that sort of space? One of the um, issues that's, that's been with us and is actually um, instrumental in uh, the hardening market, the continuing hardening market in, in that construction space is the cost of um, litigation when it comes to injuries on the site. Um, we're we're uh, we are seeing great, greatly increased costs in, in the litigation over what WorkCover see when they first see a, um, a claim from one of their clients. Now, the WorkCover people receive a premium for covering the injuries on site. Um, they will then seek to recover or, and or their clients will seek to recover um, from any other party that they think contributed to their injury. Um, and... It, it, it's my opinion that um, work cover should deal with that exclusively and not recover off other insurers. It needs the government to engage in that space to, to stop that. I know that the building commissioner um, is focused on reducing accidents on sites, um, but whether he's um, focused on the government actually looking at uh, that legislation, the same as, as happened with the um, Motor Vehicle Accident uh, Act, uh, I, I couldn't tell you. But in around about 2017, um, motor vehicle accidents were treated the same way as accidents on a site. And if you thought that somebody else contributed to your accident and you were injured, you went to court and it was tying up the courts and you know, there were big payouts and so on. So what the government did was said, okay, from now on, we're going to cap that. Now, I, I'm not sure why, in terms of motor vehicle accidents and, and inverted commas, commas, that construction accidents are treated any differently. Nobody wants them to happen. Nobody wants uh, somebody on a site to be injured or not to go home uh, for, for uh, worse reasons. Um, and, and I think that the, the same legislation should, uh, should apply, and that would certainly um, smooth things out as far as cost um, of insurance and uh, and ease of uh, application of insurance goes in our space. It sounds like there's a, a good model there that can be followed. Are you seeing evidence that there's a political will to implement those kind of changes? Not really. Um, every now and again, I, I hear noises about um, how well the New Zealand system works and, and perhaps it should be implemented here. Um, but I've, I've actually seen no uh, concrete evidence that the government's um, considering changing it. So, Glenn, what sorts of things would you like brokers and insurers to be looking out for with their construction clients in the coming months? I think um, the insurers can educate the brokers and the brokers can educate their clients on the whys and wherefores of the um, hardening market um, because it does need to become sustainable in the long term. We've seen a number of insurers pull right out of construction. We've seen Lloyd's 7 or 9 um, Lloyd's facilities just withdraw capacity out of the Australian market and, and indeed the global market. So we, we want a sustainable market here um, and that's probably the best way to do it is education. Um, I'd also draw attention um, for the class two builders in particular um, but, but also the normal house builders to amend their standard contracts uh, to allow for the effects of COVID. Um, on labour and material supply and cost and time overruns. 
um, and just understand that piece. And I've, I've got some contracts on my desk at the moment where folk are asking me to um, advise them on how they should um, couch their contracts going forward to allow for it. Um, I think in this, particularly in this um, chain supply poor environment, uh, they need to manage client expectations more than they probably ever had have had to do before. Glenn Ross, thanks very much for talking with IB Talk. You're most welcome, Danny. Glenn Ross is CEO of Mecon Insurance, and this episode of IB Talk was presented in partnership with Mecon Insurance, who specialise in the construction sector. You can find all of our latest episodes on our insurance business websites. But from IB Talk, bye for now. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.